This is the Line Waits Over Coffee Podcast, episode 13. Hi guys, welcome back to the Line Waits Over Coffee Podcast. This is now season two. We are on episode 13. A lot has happened over the summer and we are so excited to bring you all this new content coming up in season two. We are going to be doing a lot of more different things than just the podcast where we've started doing a few like mini documentary videos and then of course we're also going to start putting a lot more youtube tutorials so i've got requests for tutorials i teach a lot of rhino grasshopper and i'm going to try to put as many tutorials as i can at least two a week so keep an eye out on the youtube channel for that and also just uh, you know the past couple of months we've been in paris at the renzo piano building workshop recording an episode over there that's really exciting we've been to hong kong and we've spent a couple of days in los angeles as well bringing you great content from guests who've been at gary partners at morphosis and so it's just you know i'm really really excited to bring you this season and i wanted to start off with something that's i guess a little more entertaining and so the original title of this episode was is the earth flat and should architects care and it was a bit of a gag title and but it wasn't really getting the message that I wanted to get across accurately, the analogies I was trying to make between the content and the theory weren't really like getting across. So we've changed the name to Think Outside the Sphere, which I feel works a little bit better. So for those of you who got the email with one title and then the episodes, the other title, don't worry about it. The message is exactly the same. We're not going to go necessarily in depth into the flat earth theory, but the first time I actually heard that, I... I didn't believe it was real. I just thought it was the name of some organization. But turns out that there's people out there that actually believe the Earth is flat. And also having an aerospace engineering background and being an instructor at Space Camp before, this theory definitely like piqued my interest because of its subject matter. So obviously our planet is a sphere, but for those of you who are curious and want to learn some more, if you go on YouTube or you Google it, you are going to find tons and tons of information on the flat earth theory. But mainly the reason I bring them up is two things. And one is the ability to just have an imagination. I feel like this is something that I had struggled with as well when I was in architecture school, is that when I was in studio, at least my first couple of years, I really found it hard to get out of my box. You know, like when I would think of a construct or a space, I would always be referring like my own experiences, right? Like my idea of what a space is, of what apertures are, of how light behaves. And it was really difficult for me to break out of that. And that I guess that's one reason like I mentioned the theory is their ability to think of things not as they are, right? To completely like refresh your mind and go back to ground zero and kind of build the blocks all over again, almost ignoring reality to a certain degree just to reach a level of imagination or a level of creativity that you wouldn't be able to reach if you thought you were bound by certain aspects of reality. And the second thing that the theory stood out to me was just this idea of self-confidence. I mean, of course, these people are going around the world uh, thinking that the earth is flat, but they're doing so with such uh, sureness and such confidence right, that they almost believe that it's real. In a way, we live in a culture where where judgments happen so fast and we're making these instant decisions all the time that the ability for us to just take a pause and reflect upon the decisions that we're doing 
And even though it may seem crazy to other people, or they may look at your idea that you have for your project, and it may sound completely crazy to them, but you know that there's something there and that something can be explored over there. And just to have that level of confidence and eliminating self-doubt to be able to push through and persevere through a certain amount of time until you reach a point in, in your design where it can start manifesting itself as the great idea that it is. Because there are going to be times in studio where you're going to get stuck and you're not going to really know what to do. And at that point, I mean, a lot of doubt kicks in as to whether you're going to be able to complete this project or come up with a new idea. At that point, I would probably encourage you to go back to your assumptions. Like, what are we assuming about the space or about the context? You know, can we bend some of those rules? Can we change some things around? You know, that a lot of times, like when we start letting some of these assumptions and some of the reality go, then we can start exploring things in a newer way. And that can probably turn into something that eventually is a good idea. And I know I'm being a little vague here. It's kind of difficult to be so specific about a design project when we're not really talking about one. So we will get to the specific examples later. But essentially, I wanted to point out those two qualities as the way that not only just us as architecture students and architects need to start thinking, but also other designers as well, because that's kind of what the world needs right now is new modes of thinking. We need people to be able to think beyond how we're operating right now. I mean, the world, in a way, it's in, it's, we're in a, a bit of a crisis mode right now where we don't need people doing things the way that things have normally been done. We need people to start thinking new ways of working, new ways of operating, new inventions. That's what the world needs right now. We need to combat climate change. We need to come up with better, safer, more environmentally friendly materials to build with. I mean, as architects, I think, I forget the figure, but I think it's about 80% of resources that are used, like energy resources that are used, are used by buildings, 80%. Only 20% is used by everything else. I'll try to find out exactly where the, that figure comes from, but that that's huge. Even if it's not 80, say if it's even half, I mean, that's huge, right? So we have a huge responsibility to be able to mitigate the negative effects that we have on the planet and, of course, increase the positive effects that we have with each other as well. So we need more ideas and we need more people who can think creatively and not more drones and that's one thing I always like to tell to students is that you know don't be safe in studio studio is probably the only time in your life where you will be able to do something that is completely out of the ordinary completely wild and completely out there because most of your life I mean let's face it you're going to graduate and most of you are going to go and find a job because obviously just because you went to school doesn't mean you know everything. You got to have a mentor. You got to learn more things. And as you learn under someone else, understand that you're fulfilling their dreams. And although you're learning and gaining more skills, every idea that you put forward has to be congruent with not only your employer, but also comply to the physical realities of the world, to material realities, to construction timelines, and all these other real things. So the only time that you can really escape from any of that and do something that is truly you is in design studio in school. That's the only time. So don't be safe. Anytime I see people being safe in studio, I'm like, why are you doing this? Please just, you know, go absolutely nuts, go absolutely crazy. And sometimes the only way to do that is to kind of get out of your bubble. And I'm going to talk about the bubble a bit in part two. But a lot of times we have these ideas and we think that the ideas aren't possible. 
And I'm going to give you several examples of ideas that architects thought weren't possible but then become reality. That's the end of part one. We're going to come back with a lot of great examples for part two. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this message. Hi, listeners. If you are an architecture student, chances are that you are spending a lot of time designing in Rhino. Over the years, I've been working with Rhino and Grasshopper extensively, and I've learned some simple yet effective strategies that have saved me hours of time. Today, these methods allow me to model in half the time that I used to, allowing me to spend more time designing and less time worrying about the software. I want to share these tips with you and have put together a series of video tutorials that you can access for free along with some free downloadable files aimed to boost your productivity. These are the same tips that I give professionals and students that I teach and to access them simply go to lineweights.coffee/rhino. Again, that's lineweights.coffee/rhino to get your free video tutorials. Thank you. All right, guys, welcome back. Part two, let's go over some examples. This idea of something being impossible or the idea of someone telling you you're crazy, that something's not going to work. You know, the more and more I read about this, the more I discover that this idea of impossible just doesn't exist. It doesn't, it really doesn't exist. It just means someone hasn't tried it yet. It's more about people's idea of what's impossible. It's more for projection than it is the reality. Okay, so let me give you a few examples. Look at Steve Jobs, for example. I mean, look at Mac. They're, they're everywhere, right? Everyone's got iPhones and MacBook Pros and so on. But even way back in the day, I'm not sure if you guys remember the floppy disk version of the iMacs. They were these big purple, blue, like they were very colorful. They were this big block that would just sit on um, your desk. You know, I personally never used one, but... Way, even way back in the day, of course, Apple's biggest competitor was Windows. One of the issues that Windows had was, and still has today, I use a Windows computer, my wife uses a Mac, and I see the difference all the time, in that when I start my computer, it takes about two to three minutes for it to start, for me to get to my sign-in page. What is up with that? And when my wife turns her Mac on, in a few seconds, it's up and running. And my computer is more powerful than hers, processor speed and RAM and all that, and yet mine takes a lot longer to start up. It never made sense to me. And then I, I read about this, and it turns out that this was something that was instilled in the company a long time ago, where Steve Jobs went up to his engineers and said, you know what, I want this thing to start up. In, now, I don't know the exact number, right? But I think it was something like 15 seconds. So Steve Jobs goes up there and says, I need this computer up and running in 15 seconds. And of course, the engineers laughed. It's like, there's no way. Do you have any idea? This is a computer, okay? It has to compute things. It has to do this check, then this check. It has to do this and blah, blah, blah. And this whole entire list of these million operations before it can run. And CJ said, I don't care. Make it work. You have to figure it out. It has to be 15 seconds. And so after trying and trying and trying and trying again and again and again, they finally got it down to a number that he was comfortable with. It was one of those things where you know, you would assume that it's just not possible that someone would come up to you and you say, yeah, just forget it. That's not going to happen in your dreams. No, with enough perseverance, with enough uh, focus and enough energy put towards a particular task, there's no reason it can't get done. And now that's one of the things that makes Mac stand out over Windows is its startup time. Whether it's your iPhone or whether it's your MacBook Pro, you hit on in a few seconds, it's up, it's running. And so that really changes the game and helps them stand out in their competition. Look at Henry Ford as well. Henry Ford, back in the day, we're talking about like late 1920s, 
there was the V6 engine. V6 was out, but Henry Ford wanted a V8. Now, I don't know the exact technicalities of why you couldn't just go from a V6 to a V8, but apparently it was a huge deal. Like, you could not go to a V8. Having eight cylinders in a car engine was just something that was impossible. And so he said, I don't care. You have to figure it out. This is not a matter of weeks where they went and experimented and came back to him and told him, no, this is not going to work. No, this is a matter of years Okay, so they would keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and keep failing over and over and over again. And each time would come to him and say it's not possible. And then guess what? One day they figured it out. They figured out that they needed to mold the entire engine block that holds all the eight cylinders as one single cast. Okay, and uh, there's a museum and you can go to the museum, you can see that cast and it's this one solid block. So I'm guessing before it was made out of multiple parts, but they decided to just you know, cast it in one piece and that worked. And that was the V8 engine. Again, it was a matter of just saying no, going for it and just keeping on trying until you hit success. Even today, look at Elon Musk. You look at most electric cars today, Nissan Leaf or one of those other cars, what's their range? Is it what, 80 miles? So can you imagine someone coming up and saying, you know what, let's make an electric car that looks way better than those electric cars and goes about 200 miles on a single charge. People think you're crazy. You think like, well, if we could do 200, don't you think we would have built that battery already? But guess what? Now you can go, you can get a Tesla right now and go that nice 200 miles, you know, on a single charge. Same thing with Hyperloop. So you told someone a couple of years ago, hey, you can go from LA to San Francisco in 30 minutes, center to center of city to the center of the city, uh, which is faster than taking a plane. If you count in all the other aspects of air travel, It takes a lot longer to get from Los Angeles to San Francisco. But guess what? Hyperloop is almost a reality right now. And they're testing it in Nevada. And the tests seem to be doing well. And there's competitions on who can design the best capsule. Or just the idea of it. If you've told someone that there's going to be this giant tube, we're going to suck the air out of this tube and put people in these little capsules and just fling them through on these magnets at extremely high speeds, almost as fast as an airplane. I think it's like six or 700 miles an hour that they're going. I mean, people think you were crazy, but you know, I'm, it's going to be a reality. You just watch in a couple of years, we're going to have the Hyperloop. And there's so many other cities around the world, like Dubai, that are interested in implementing Hyperloop in their cities. You know, so it's something that is going to be real. The last example I want to give is Boyan Slat. If you guys don't know who Boyan Slat is, he's this kid from the Netherlands who basically did this for his high school project. You may know where I'm going with this. He was in the Greek islands on holiday. And as he was swimming, he noticed that there was more plastic in the ocean than there were fish. And this really disturbed him. And so for his high school project, he came up with this idea of cleaning up the ocean by creating this gigantic long tube, this big plastic thing that just floats on top of the water with a net that's just a few feet below because most plastic floats. So you can capture most of this plastic just by in a few feet. And this thing has little sails on it. So the air catches it and it goes with the current. So it's going a little faster than the current because of the sails. And it's going to grab and gather all this trash. And then we can collect the trash later. When trash goes in the ocean, you throw a plastic ball into the ocean. It's going to go one of two directions. Either the current is going to take it towards the beach towards the shore and then you have beach cleanups and so on and you clean up the beach so that's either one way it ends up there or the other way it actually ends up in what's known as 
these giant garbage patches in the ocean. Basically, the ocean currents converge at certain locations, and there's about five of them on our planet, which are gigantic trash islands, essentially. Okay, so the goal of this device, so to speak, is miles long, and it just floats along the water, so there's no actual energy involved. There's no batteries or motors or anything like that. It just floats along, gathers the trash, and if it works effectively, we could remove about 90% of the trash in the next 20 years in the ocean. Isn't that amazing? And guess what? Now it's a reality. This thing started as a high school project. He dropped out of school to pursue this full-time. It just launched off the San Francisco Bay, the first one, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And it's on its way to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is this gigantic trash island between California and Hawaii. We're going to know in the next couple of months if this thing is working. Can you imagine if this thing really works? that we can have clean oceans in the next 20 years. I mean, that's that's phenomenal, right? All from a high school project. If you told me a high school project today would become the next big thing to clean up our oceans or to remove uh, greenhouse gases, people would probably laugh at you. But this thing is, is real. And a lot of it has to do with your ability to get help from others. I, again, I'm coming back to this idea of the bubble. So when you're in studio, a lot of times you're thinking like you're in that studio bubble. You're with your peers, you're in that bubble. You expand that bubble a little bit and then you're in the bubble of the school, your architecture school I'm talking about. And you know everyone in there. And then you expand that bubble and that doesn't happen very often where that bubble goes bigger and you know people in your university, whether it's the fine arts department, the engineering department, biology. You know, how often do we interact with them? And then you go even bigger than that. And how often do you interact with people from other colleges and schools across the nation or across the world? Sometimes... To make that impossible a reality, you have to do that. Look at Jacob and McFarlane, right? They were architects who were designing this restaurant in the Pompidou Center. So the Pompidou Center, as most of you know, by Richard Rogers and Renzo Piano, uh, way back in the day in Paris, now has this restaurant up there that was built in the year 2000. And Jacob and McFarlane had this idea of these really globular, you know, very organic forms that create these spaces in the restaurant. Well, the problem was in the year 2000, well, we didn't really have the software to express that. So what was the option? They could have either said, oh, well, I guess uh, there's no way for us to make drawings of these things, so we'll just make something simpler. Well, that was option A. Option B was, no, we're going to figure it out somehow. And although there were no architects on the planet that could have helped them, they ended up finding a naval architect who was using this marine software that is used in boat design. And they hired this guy, and he was able to actually take their forms and use his marine software to be able to design it and make the drawings for it. So it forced them to look outside their profession and to seek out people who are doing other things in order to make this possible. The same is true for Gary. You know, whether we're talking about the 1992 Barcelona Olympics, that giant fish statue, that's in 1992. Even Bilbao, the Guggenheim, was done in 97, right? That's almost 20 years ago. You can imagine what the software was like back then. That doesn't mean that Gary's supposed to sit there and say, um, yeah, I guess we just don't have the right tools for it, so let's forget it. No, he went around and he started to seek out other industries that could possibly help him. And he was like, well, the Guggenheim is made out of these titanium plates and they're in these sinuous forms and complex geometries. Guess what else uses uh, thin sheet metals in complex geometries? Well, airplanes do. Airplanes have these aluminum sheets that get molded and so on. And so he went to an aerospace software company, Katia, and asked for their help. And guess what? That's what helped build the Guggenheim. 
And then Katia became Digital Project, and now people use Digital Project in architecture. It just goes to show that this idea of collaboration, getting out of your bubble, is so important to be able to make things that normally seem impossible or that people will look at you and say, oh, you just can't do that. We just don't have the right tools or we don't have the right technology. Maybe we don't have the right technology in our field. That doesn't mean that other people in other disciplines haven't developed it for their needs. And there there needs to be more of this outreach that we need to do towards other disciplines to be able to draw in the good ideas that everyone else has and synthesize them to make better projects. Right. The last example is Santiago Calatrava. You know, I love Calatrava's work. And what I think makes it so strong is the fact that he has a very strong, I would say, like artistic side through his sculptures, through his paintings and his drawings. And then he also has a very strong technical side from his engineering background. And it's because he has these two worlds where he's combining his technical side with his artistic side to come up with this beautiful architecture. So a lot of times I know we're in school and we're surrounded by our peers who are even our professors who are generally in most cases architects as well. You know, it's really important for us to be able to get out of that, go to other departments, go check out, you know, one of the best departments and the most fun departments I've ever checked out is the electrical engineering department. They've had some of the most interesting projects and that's bleeding into architecture now. You'll see videos online of architecture schools using drones to build things. Well, who's coding the drones? It's uh, you need some electrical engineering students coming over and helping you put the circuits together and helping train your architects on the software. Eventually, the lines between our disciplines are getting more blurred every day. And eventually, we're not going to have these words that we describe for each of our professions, but rather, everyone's going to be a little bit of a jack of all trades, because that's just what the industry is going to necessitate. Anyway, that's pretty much what I have to say. I hope that's helped you guys out. Check out some of the projects that I've mentioned. I've put them all in the show notes. And again, I just encourage you guys to get out there, be extremely bold and wild with your ideas. This is the only time you can do it. So please do so and explore your campus. This, I'm sure there's so much going on in the other departments that you can draw from. Bring back to your design project. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out those Rhino tips. Just go ahead to lineweights.coffee slash Rhino. You can sign up there and I'll send you those tutorials. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. New episodes every Thursday. I'll see you guys next week.